You are listening to She Rises, a podcast dedicated to women who are ready to stop settling and start living their lives by design. If you're ready to talk about the stuff that weighs you down and get practical advice on everything from your health, body image, spirituality, relationships, and personal growth, then you're in the right place. Hello, I'm Giovanna Capoza, your host, master coach, spiritual teacher, and mind-body expert, and I'm on a mission to unsettle women all over the world. Are you ready to rise? Hello and welcome back to another episode of She Rises. I am your host, Giovanna Capoza, and I want to welcome you back again and really thank you for listening to the show. It's an honor and a privilege that I get to host um, amazing authors and teachers on the show, as well as have you as my audience member coming back week after week to listen uh, and learn from myself and my amazing guests. And I want you to know I appreciate that and it doesn't go unnoticed. So thank you. And thank you for sharing as well. Today, I am talking about a topic on the show with an amazing guest who is um, paving the way in this field, as are many, and it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. It's one of the main themes of the book I'm writing, and that topic is resilience. Resilience is the learned capacity to cope with any level of adversity, from a series of small annoyances to the struggles and sorrows that break our hearts. It's essential for surviving and thriving in this world that seems to be full of more and more troubles and tragedies. And the good news is, guys, that it's completely trainable and recoverable when we know how to do that. And it's really important that you know that. Sometimes we feel like, God, life is just throwing way too many things at us. The business, the kids, my career, whatever it might be, you know, your relationship status, It feels like all too much sometimes, and sometimes it just feels like you're going to break. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I've had those moments so often in my life, and I know that you have as well, because we're human, and we do live in this world with lives that increasingly throw things at us. Today, Linda Graham, who is the author of the book, Resilience, Powerful Practices for Building, or rather Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster, is going to be on our show. And the cool thing about this show is she's going to walk us through a couple of really, really simple and easy exercises to start to retrain your level of resiliency and, in fact, increase that level of resilience. I am so excited to have her on the show. I'm excited that you guys are listening to this. This is going to be a show that you're going to want to uh, take notes on. You're definitely going to want to check out Linda's book. And let's continue the conversation. You can find us over at SheRisesPodcast.com and you can post some questions in the comments and I'd be happy to answer them back and continue this very great conversation on the topic of resilience and how we can better cultivate and strengthen our level of flexibility and bounce back. Really hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Linda. Welcome to She Rises. I am so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you, Giovanna. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Warm, warm welcome to you. Uh, I said just before we started recording that I'm a huge fan of the topic of resiliency. It's, um, I would say, one of the gifts that uh, you know I've created in my life um, through trial and error and through going through uh, you know trauma and picking myself back up again. I absolutely 
Um, love the tips I've heard you talk about uh, around cultivating this resiliency within yourself. And I know we're going to get into that in this show, among other things. So again, warm welcome to you. Thank you. Yeah. So I would love to start with, you know, the topic of resiliency can kind of take us into like a lot of different realms, like, you know, childhood trauma that gets stored in the nervous system, like all the way up to, you know, someone bumped my car today in traffic. And how is that? How is that going to affect me? And I know that everyone responds differently to different things. And, and I guess, you know, it's depending on whatever load they have. Talk to us a little bit about your definition of resiliency and and so that we can better understand what we're talking about here. Okay, so as we both know, this is a fairly big topic. So I start with resilience as the capacity to cope with the challenges and crises of life. We can bounce back from any adversity. And in my book, I focus on different levels of disruption to our resilience. So we can have barely a wobble, you know, we just are in a fender bender. Um, we can have a more serious struggle or heartache that really can challenge us, like causing an injury in a car accident. Or we can have the trauma of too much when our over our coping mechanisms are overwhelmed, like causing the death of a child in a car accident. So there are various levels of stressors that happen to people. And that's the first element that the behavioral scientists talk about in terms of resilience is the severity of the external factors. But then they also look at the strength of the external resources. Can we call on family and friends? Do we have financial resources? Do we have medical services? Do we have social community services? But then there's the third element, which is where most people think about resilience, those inner qualities, those inner strengths of grit, determination courage, perseverance, hanging in there. And then the neuroscience comes in. And so in my book, I'm really talking about resilience as being the innate hardwired capacity for response flexibility, being able to perceive what's happening and shift our responses to better meet what's happening. So that capacity of response flexibility is innate in our being because it's innate in our brain. And so the book offers 130 exercises to help people strengthen that capacity of response flexibility. That's how I talk about resilience. Tell us a couple of things quickly. Um, and actually, you know what, before we even move there, because I had another question pop up in my head. What okay. is the difference? So like, you know, we've all had these days where, you know, like, stuff happens, right? And it's like, okay, you know, I, you know, I, I did have a bit of a fender bender or someone, you know, someone did cut me off in line at the checkout and, you know, you can have mm -hmm. your response, you get annoyed or whatever, but we've all had those days. I'm going to talk about me personally, where it's like the little thing happens and mm -hmm. I am melting down. And I know there's a part of me that's going, okay, this is a bit of a disproportionate reaction to what actually happened. Mm -hmm. What's happening there? Because in that moment, I've, in, in essence, I don't have flexibility. I've lost my resiliency. I am just melting down. Why is it that some people can respond certain ways to certain things while others have this other response, you know, and it could be a little thing, could be a big thing, right? Right. And in addition to some people respond to certain events differently than other people do, we at different times in our lives can respond to certain events differently 
than we would have before or that we might at a later time. So we learn our capacities of resilience early on in our families of origin, and that's because our interactions with our parents, our caregivers, shape the development of the brain. It shapes the maturation of the brain. So it shapes the maturation of the prefrontal cortex, the center of executive functioning, which is the structure we use for our response flexibility. So the more secure attachment and the more inner secure base of resilience that develops as we're growing up with our parents, the less vulnerable we're going to be with to trauma or to disruptions to our resilience later on. But then also we learn resilience from experience. We always learn resilience from experience. The Japanese proverb, fall down seven times, get up eight. We learn from our experience of how to be resilient. So depending on the experiences that we've had, we're going to be more or less resilient. And interestingly enough, often when people have been a little bit too sheltered or a little bit too protected, they're not as resilient as other people who have had to cope with more since the third grade or since college or since whenever. But then it's also our own levels of vulnerability. Are we stressed out? Are we tired? Are we exhausted? Did we just lose a job or lose a relationship? We can be more vulnerable to being impacted by an event than we might be at other times. So all of those are factors that go into play. What I'm trying to concentrate on about resiliency is that we can choose experiences now that will strengthen the brain to be more resilient. And when we know what those tools and practices are, it doesn't have to be just trial and error. We really can choose the experiences that are going to work the best to make ourselves more resilient. We, we have that power to choose and to learn. So there's almost, there's this plasticity to like the autonomic nervous system and to even the brain, right? We know about neuroplasticity. Now we're learning about this way in which we can heal the nervous system from having these sort of knee-jerk reactions and like you said we can we can we have that sort of programmed resiliency from whatever's you know we grew up with and there's a way in which we can you know correct it and even cultivate more mm -hmm. of that could you speak to some of that and, and maybe some exercises that would help us with that right so it is the higher brain the prefrontal cortex where our resiliency resides and one of the functions of the prefrontal cortex is to manage the nervous system that's one of its functions, is to manage our fight-flight responses, to manage when we numb out or collapse or shut down in the face of something difficult. So as we strengthen the capacity of the higher brain to regulate those survival responses of the lower brain, we're going to be more resilient. And we do that with what I call our somatic intelligence, our body-based tools of breath and touch and movement and visualization that will actually help us regulate our nervous system so that we can return to the baseline physiological equilibrium of the body-brain. It's what's called our range of resilience. So very, very simple tools. And, and I must say, one of the mantras of my book is little and often, small practices repeated many times, because that is how the brain learns and changes and rewires itself. So small practices like putting your hand on your heart. Anytime there's a startle or an upset, just putting your hand on your heart so you can feel the warm touch of your hand on your heart. And you begin to breathe more deeply, more gently, more slowly into the heart center. 
that is simply activating the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system and we begin to calm down. Breathing in a sense of ease or goodness or safety or trust into the heart center that actually restores a coherent heart rate variability. It allows the body to respond more flexibly to stress. Then to remember a moment of feeling safe and loved and cherished with another human being and not the whole relationship because that could be kind of complex, but just one moment when you felt safe and loved and cherished with a partner, with a child, with a friend, with a therapist, with a spiritual figure, with a pet. And you evoke the feeling of that memory. You just let your body feel that safety again. What you're doing is activating the release of oxytocin, which is the brain's hormone of safety and trust. It's the brain's direct and immediate antidote to the stress hormone cortisol. So when you activate the release of the oxytocin, the blood pressure goes down, the heart rate stabilizes, and you can come into a sense of ease and calm and safety and trust in the body. And so we we use an exercise like that. I ask people to practice that maybe five times a day to get the brain used to going there automatically when there's a startle. So that's one of the first tools I teach people. It's powerful enough to calm down a panic attack in less than a minute. So it's an important tool that we have. Absolutely. What I love about that is that it's it's simple. Right. And Mm -hmm. sometimes we overlook the things that are simple because we think, well, no, there must be, you know, there must be some other complex, you know, solution for this. It can't be this easy or this simple Mm -hmm. rather. Um, And I would Mm -hmm. say it's simple, not easy, because you, you do have to remind yourself to do that and to get into that habit. And you have to give yourself permission to do that. Another very, very simple tool, much more powerful than people will expect, is to simply sigh is to simply breathe in fully and then exhale fully. (sighs) That resets the nervous system. And if you can pair a sigh with a moment of tension or agitation, you can actually regulate the nervous system back into calm. It's very simple, but we need to give ourselves permission to do that. Absolutely. It's so funny. I'm thinking I have, um, when I facilitate my group programs, I actually have people do that in sort of together the beginning mm-hmm. of the program. And it's funny because you have the people that sort of roll their eyes like, oh, this is so gimmicky or this is the thing. But when I explain, no, actually, there's a reason <laughs> to do exactly. this. There's actually science behind this, guys. You know, um, these things don't sound like, oh, it just sounds like some self-helpy thing. It's No, it really does work. It really does calm calm the body. (laughs) That's the benefit of the science coming in and confirming what could be common sense, what are normal practices to breathe deeply, to put hand on the heart. That can be kind of instinctive for people. But the science comes in and explains how that's changing the stress response of the nervous system, how that is actually helping us become more resilient. And once we understand that, we're more likely to do it. And when we do it, we're more likely to experience the benefit of it. And when we experience the benefit of it, we're more likely to repeat it and make it a new active habit. Absolutely. What is your experience, Linda, with, so we know, you know, the fight or flight response, there's that third option, which is freeze. So part of what the nervous system might also do is freeze in that response. How do you help people in that freeze moment where sometimes literally when you're frozen, it's hard to 
it's hard to resource yourself. Like it's, it's mm-hmm. cause you're just in, in that fear or you're just in that, whatever that old trauma is, is being kicked up again. Is there a way in which we can, even in that moment, cultivate resiliency? Oh yes. So let's say when the sympathetic nervous system, act, re- act, it activates, it revs up, that's the fight flight where it mobilizes us to take action. But when the parasympathetic nervous system overactivates, that's when we freeze, numb out, collapse, shut down, withdraw. And that is harder to come out of because we don't have the energy of our body mobilized to take action. We have to re-mobilize ourselves. So simple ways to do that are through movement. I mean, something very, very simple. If you clench your hand into a fist really tightly so you can feel the contraction, and then you open it back up again so that you feel more the openness, that is shifting the physiology of the body. It shifts the nervous system. You can um, feel the tension in your body and then open back out to a place in your body that isn't feeling tense, which might be your big toe. It might be your elbow. But when you move your attention, you're actually shifting your awareness of what's happening in your body. So I will, this is more sophisticated, but I will teach my students and my clients, let your body inhabit the posture of feeling shut down or feeling frozen. And you just let yourself feel that. Then... You move your body, you don't even have to think about what it is or what to call it, but you move your body to the opposite posture, the opposite posture, and everything will open up and your hands may go up in the air, and you're moving into a posture that has more power and more energy into it, and you can go back and forth a couple of times and then remain standing in what would be called a power pose or the mountain pose of yoga, where you're feeling more energy moving through your body. And then you can come out of that collapse or withdrawal somewhat and begin to take action again. Beautiful. Actually, I was doing that as you were mm-hmm. explaining that. And I, I noticed um, something really interesting happened. And for those of you listening, I mean, you could probably do the fist thing while you're driving, but preferably practice this at home when you're not focused somewhere else. But so I, I was here and I just, I, I did the fist clenching and released it. And an interesting thing happened is, you know, I did both sides and I, I just I automatically had this uh, response to take in a deeper breath. And everything calmed down and I felt like little chills, you know, down my back. Right. So you're pointing to something very important here, Giovanna, which is to notice your experience. So all of these tools, we can do them and create some shift in the nervous system, but it's when we're paying attention and when we're noticing the shift that we're more likely to get the benefits of the resilience of it. And so that's something that I teach all the time in my workshops and in my book. You have a practice, you do it, you notice the shift, you notice the change in your experience because that's the response flexibility. That's what we're trying to train and activate. What are, what are your thoughts, Linda, on sort of the, um, there's almost, there's a biochemical addictive quality to stress sometimes, right? Where we, like, I've, I've talked people through this and it's almost like I can see, I could see the people who are resistant to it because this is the way I've been. This is how I've done it. And, I, and, and even though it's uncomfortable and even though, you know, it creates all kinds of havoc somatically and otherwise, there's almost this, like, they can't break it because there's almost this addictive nature to hanging on to the thing. 
What would you say to that? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to answer that in two ways. One, Kelly McGonigal at Stanford has done some beautiful research about the positive of stress. There is eustress as well as distress that comes from the Greek. But the eustress is the positive stress. We use our activation of our nervous system to create governments and write symphonies and solve global warming. And we have to activate to be able to build our civilization. So there is such a thing as positive stress. We're simply channeling that energy. And I've heard that the body doesn't know the difference between stress and enthusiasm. Right, that, hmm. that when we get enthusiastic about something. So this may be where the addictive quality comes in. The, the neural pathway of all addiction is dopamine, the dopamine neuro, neurogenic, dopaminergic pathway, where we get a hit of dopamine not only when we uh, achieve something and accomplish something and we're rewarded, we have the satisfaction of the reward, but when we anticipate the reward. And if we anticipate something getting better, we could get addicted to that. We could get addicted to, but I can fix it, I can fix it, I can fix it. Uh And so paying attention to really what's happening in our body and what our motivation is and using some of these tools to calm down the nervous system so that in fact the higher brain is also online guiding our decisions. It isn't just our intuitive motivation. The higher brain is also online guiding our decisions. Then we can use that stress to benefit. You know, when Csikszentmihalyi wrote his book, Flow, and he said flow is that sweet spot between anxiety and stress and boredom. We need some activation to be in flow and to feel good. So we're, we're just learning to pay exquisite attention to the experience in our bodies and what it's communicating to us and making choices about how we want to respond, how we want to channel that energy. What I love about uh, the work that you do and and even the the exercises you've put put forth to us already is this very embodied noticing experience. And I, I work with a lot of, you know, type A high achieving women and I find that the importance of getting into the soma is is so vital because even just last night I was having a conversation with a close friend who fits this category as do I and mm-hmm. it was sort of like well I need to understand like cerebrally what's happening and my sort of knee jerk now with my clients is well you no you don't you don't have to go into the analysis of it let's go into the body let's let's actually start experiencing what it feels like to have ease and, um, and to release the stress, to have the, the, the opposite sort of thing happening mm-hmm. and the very embodied sort of um, roadmap. That's what I love about what you've put forth. Mm-hmm. So what you're talking about is mindfulness of the body, embodiedness. And mindfulness, very often people think of mindfulness as something cognitive. But mindfulness is actually awareness of any experience, knowing what you're experiencing while you're experiencing it. And so one of the things they have found most powerful for helping people um, calm down is mindful movement, being aware of how our bodies are moving. In other words, mindful movement is more powerful than just movement, just running on the treadmill or just mindfulness, 
just sitting paying attention to your experience. Mindful movement does more to calm down the body. So when we do big practices like yoga or qigong or tai chi, but also when we do small practices like paying attention to what you feel like when you're frowning and what you feel like when you're smiling. Just paying attention to the difference in our physiology when we're having those experiences can begin to shift your response to things. So, yes, paying attention to the signals we're getting from our body, but also the noticing, the reflecting, the discerning what could be different here, what could be more flexible or more workable here. Absolutely. So it's really the integration that makes us resilient. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And for and for all of my, you know, type A women listening, you know, there's a difference between I got to figure it out and mindfulness. Like there's a, there's a difference between that. And uh, and it's really important that we do focus on, you know, maybe there is nothing to figure out in the moment, right? There's nothing I don't need to like dive into, you know, why it is that I'm having this reaction. Sometimes there's no need to figure it out in that moment, but rather like you said to bring it back to a place of mindfulness and that in and of itself helping to relax Mm -hmm. the nervous system and retrain it. So let's sophisticate this a little bit. When people are in worry and in rumination and they're churning on something, got to fix it, got to fix it, what's the answer, what's the answer? I've never done that, Linda. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I am not, I'm always in the flow. I'm never worried. (laughs) So that's when we're in the default network of the brain, which is when we're not focused on a task, when we're not looking at something specific, and the brain is just playing on its own. We can go into that kind of worry and rumination, and that's sometimes why people practice mindfulness. Let me come back to focusing on my breath. Let me come back to focusing on a phrase, because then you pull out of that worry and that rumination. But the truth is that default network is also the processing of the brain that leads to intuition, that leads to imagination. It's what we experience when we're in a daydream, when we're in a reverie, when the brain is just kind of making its own links and its own associations. And it's where we can get an insight. It's where we can get an aha. Oh, I never thought of that before. And often we don't even know where it came from because we weren't conscious about thinking about anything. But if we can relax our attention not in worry, not trying to fix something, but just letting the brain play, sometimes walking in nature or going for a swim is a good place for this to happen, Um, taking a shower, you know, where you're not necessarily trying to solve things, and letting the brain just come up with its own answers on its own. So there are many, many exercises in the book where people can learn how to make good use of that deconditioning model of working with the brain, because that's where we get our insights and our revelations that's where we can understand sometimes at a deeper level what the right choice is beautifully said i love that and for those of you listening we will have a link to linda's book in the show notes uh um after the show and you can check that out at sherisespodcast.com linda I could geek out on this forever. I just love this topic. I, I've absolutely loved having you on. Um, it, it, I can't even, I'm looking at the timer and I'm realizing, oh my gosh, we only have a few minutes left and it went by so fast. What would be your your sort of final closing? And I know it's tough because you've got this big juicy uh, or this book with all these big juicy, amazing um, you know, information and research and exercises. If you could sum up something that you really 
you know, would like the audience to take away besides buy the book people. Um, (laughs) But beyond that, what might that be? Well, because here's what I would like readers or viewers, listeners to leave with. Because the brain can change lifelong, that's true now. The neuroscientists know that now for sure. So even adult brains can grow new neurons and grow new neural pathways and create new new habits. We can change our brain's responses lifelong. Then not only do we have a choice to do that, but I believe we have a responsibility to do that. We have a responsibility to learn how to become more resilient for our own well-being, but also the welfare of people around us and the good of the of the planet entirely. And so, because it's possible, I'm encouraging people to set the intention and develop the discipline to learn some of these practices that will actually help them. You know, one of the phrases in the book is shit happens, but shift happens too. Love and it. so taking responsibility to learn how to shift our responses so that they're more flexible. That's what I would leave the listeners with. I love that. And I especially love you know, bringing in the responsibility here, like it's, you know, we can say it's optional, but really it's not. There's a greater responsibility to yourself, to your relationships and, you know, to, to your community really. And then, like you said, the ripple effect to the world at large, if we can learn to cultivate these habits, um, oh, what a wonderful world we'd live in, so to speak. So I love that. I love that you brought that in right at this ending, perfect ending. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Linda, it was such a pleasure having you on. Like I said, I I can go on forever on this topic. Um, Those of you listening, if you were driving and you didn't get a chance to do the little exercise with your fists, like, please do that. Take a moment. And I would say this of, of all the episodes I've done, like take some notes, grab Linda's book. There's a lot of other great resources out there uh, around this. And uh, I so look forward uh, to sharing this episode with everyone, Linda. And again, I thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Giovanna. This was actually completely enjoyable. Oh, I love it. <laughs> great. What a perfect way to end the show and to start off our amazing holidays that are coming up. Wasn't this a great topic right before we're getting into the holiday uh, break? And also because we've been in holiday mode, a lot of us shopping and cooking and planning. And I just love that this was our show topic for uh, our last show before we break for the holidays. I wanted to wish you and your families a happy, happy holiday, a Merry Christmas, a happy Hanukkah, whatever it is that you celebrate, celebrate your families celebrate yourselves and celebrate the gift of this time of year that reminds each of us what's really, really, truly important, which is love and connection. Happy holidays to everyone listening. I am so grateful again that you come here each week and you listen in. And for those of you that participate and get online with me and ask questions, so, so appreciated. And I so also appreciate that you share this with your friends and your families and your colleagues because any way that we can help someone have that little moment to just think of something differently is a good moment for me. Again, happy holidays. We'll see you back in the new year with more amazing episodes. And I can't wait to share more with you then. Have a wonderful holiday and happy new year. Thank you so much for tuning in and keep rising, everyone. 
For books and resources related to today's episode, make sure you head over to SheRisesPodcast.com and I'll see you there. If you've enjoyed today's episode, make sure you tune back in next week when I dive into more juicy topics to help make your life the best it can be. And hey, if you've enjoyed listening to the show and you love it, head on over to iTunes and leave me a rate and review and subscribe there to the show. 